Welcome back to Foundations in International Political Economy. Foundations in IPE is a showcase of interviews with foundational figures in the discipline of international or global political economy. The project is led by Dr. Stuart Shields from the University of Manchester and myself, Professor Alex Nunn from the University of Derby. You can find out more by visiting our website www.ipefoundations.org.uk where there are videos of the interviews and more information about the project. We're grateful for the support of the British Academy and the Levy Hume Trust. Video production was by Sam Jordan Films. Dr Sophia Price from Leeds Beckett University helped with the recording of the interviews and music is Awakening by Waterboy, which is available on Pixabay. In this episode, we catch up with Professor V. Spike Peterson over Zoom. Spike Peterson is Professor of International Relations at the University of Arizona. She has held visiting positions at a range of universities in the UK, Sweden and Australia. She has received separately the LGBTQA and Feminist Theory and Gender Studies Eminent Scholar Awards from the International Studies Association and also the Charles A. McCoy Lifetime Achievement Award from the American Political Science Association. Her work on gendered states, gender, sexuality, race and family in international relations and on reproductive, productive and virtual economies are all seminal contributions to the development of international political economy as a discipline. All right, then let's just go so, for it. Yeah, okay, so do you want to start then by telling us a little bit about how you got into academia and why you started thinking and researching and learning about international relations and international political economy? Okay. <laughs> um, well, I opted to review some of my life course. I believe that we are our life histories and it has everything to do with how I ended up being who I am and where I am and what I study. So basically I grew up in a small town in Northern Illinois, conservative, completely white, really good, caring, decent parents who were pursuing the American dream with frenzy and worked very hard. And when I went off to college, I thought, holy crow, um, the world is so much bigger than my household in the town I grew up in, which was very exciting and also uh, transformational. It was the civil rights era. I graduated high school in 1964. I was already on board for that. I mean, I just knew morally, what, what's the question here? Um, went to college, discovered there was a wider world, went home that summer and thought, I'm not so into hometown, um, strict parents, and left home, which made me financially independent. I mean, I left all uh, support from my folks. And that was a political economy learning experience. I also was afraid I couldn't continue my college education because I didn't know how to do that. My sister suggested looking for scholarships. I got scholarship, I worked half time, and I managed to put myself through university. It did take me six years. Um, and that's when I really began to um, develop my own thinking, especially with the influence of my now college roommate named Paula, who basically turned me on to three different things I hadn't realized before. One was attention to 
activist politics, the civil war, not civil war, civil rights was on, but especially the peace marches and anti-war activism that were happening on campus. And the development of feminist or what were then called women's issues. And I became more active and interested. And she also alerted me to, you could do travel in a way that certainly was never encouraged in my family. That was exciting. She knew somehow that you could take spring semester off, which just never occurred to a, a goody two-shoes, well-behaved girl on her own. And that way I did take the next three spring semesters off and lived in New York City, Southern California, um, and back to San Francisco in 1967. That was a fabulous timing, hippie still and Berkeley one semester, and I graduated with a psychology and philosophy major. Psych, mostly because I was, I've always been curious about what makes us the way we are, and I had plenty of questions like a lot of people do on that particular journey. And philosophy, because let's face, I really do like the big questions, and that has continued to be a thread, but those actually, made no sense to me career-wise or anything. But because I did that travel over spring semester, and then Paula knew you could somehow travel around the world in 1970 on $2 a day, which we then proceeded to do. Yes, it was uh, an extraordinary time, but I mean, it's accurate. I left the country with just short of $900, and nine months later had to borrow money for the flight back to the States, but nine months around the world. But that, as you can imagine. Mm -hmm. um, and I wasn't studious about it. I was just having a good time. But even having a good time, I was paying attention. And it was hard not to notice um, things about the world I wouldn't have noticed from my hometown. And I then came back to Illinois, briefly saved some more money. I was really addicted to traveling on the road. And I certainly preferred that to typing jobs. So I was very good at saving money so that I could do other things. And I went off to Africa on my own through Europe and, uh, uh, and then crossed over from Italy to Northern Africa and met up with a group of folks and traveled across the Sahara Desert and did almost two years traveling around <laughs> West, Central, and East Africa in a VW Beetle camping, which was just flat out wonderful. And, but I couldn't, I couldn't make any money on the road that way. So I went back, I got a master's degree in social sciences. You could do these multidisciplinary degrees back in those days. Social sciences with a specialization in anthropology, African studies and sociology. The anthropology part was very interesting. Um, I'll try to move on quickly here. And then I went back to Africa again on my own. I just really didn't want to stay in the States and do typing work. And I had all these degrees and things that didn't get you a job. Um, and I spent another three years in Africa on my own, basically hitchhiking uh, from Kenya, Sudan, down toward the South, um, but not the apartheid states. And 
that was, of course, another learning experience. I came back and thought, okay, I was already in my 30s and I was really done with typing for a living, which I could scratch by with. Um, and decided, well, I'll just, I'll just get a PhD. I already had a master's, you know, it won't take me very long. Um, and I could teach junior college. That seemed appealing. It seemed the limit of my imagination at the time. And I ended up applying to and getting into American University in the School of International Service, uh, International, uh, International Theory PhD program, having never taken an international relations course never taken a political science course and thinking that international relations well that would be the most relevant to the questions i now had about what the hell is going on here <laughs> not what questions did the the odysseys uh, provoke for you how could there be so much inequality and unnecessary suffering yeah I imagine the places you went to in Africa were fairly politicized at that time as well. This is 71, 73, and 75 to 78. Not so much as you might think, or not on the overland backpacker trail. Um, it wasn't nearly as militarized, for one thing, and that made a difference. And a white woman traveling on her own was uh, enough of a novelty that, uh, again, I mostly had a good time. But I did start to increase my um, question base. But IR did not meet that expectation. Um, but when I got, I started that in about 1980, 80 or 81. And I, I've just, I've never been enamored of international relations as it's taught in the academy but I realized this time when I was in school feminists had made a difference in terms of critiques of science philosophy epistemology I was all over that it never came up in my studies I will say that critiques or analyses of racism sexism heterosexism even really kind of classism, rarely ever were mentioned in any classes I ever took. This was the, you know, the 80s in my high school and the other degrees were in the 70s. Um, but the feminist critique of science did it for me. And I tried to apply that, bring it into international relations. Uh, yeah, so that, that, that was my start. And it was a uh, posed more questions than it answered and still does. Can I ask a question about the international relations theme then? Because like, I, in preparation for this interview, I went back over a whole load of stuff and I was flicking through things that you'd written and you know, looking at the themes over time. And I, one of the things that really struck me doing it like that, looking at the whole body of work together, was your, your kind of sense of, you're, you were bringing all sorts of other things to international relations, but you kept, kept chipping <laughs> discipline that you didn't like. <laughs> and I, what, why were you so, <laughs> you know, keep hammering away at this, at this kind of errant discipline or resistant discipline? Yeah, like all such questions, that's complicated, but I've had many years to think about it. I think in part it was the discipline I've been trained in. I had a PhD in international relations, so it was the most obvious place to try to 
um, uh, make a voice, and it was the discipline that I always thought was supposed to address global issues. Um, I don't know, aside from anthropology, which was equally expansive, if you will. Um, so I, I couldn't um, make more of a difference among feminists were doing their own stuff. I didn't need to make a contribution there. I was pretty unfamiliar with critiques of racism and post-colonialism, post-structural I couldn't make a contribution there, but it was pretty obvious IR needed some significant contributions from the margins. And, um, and pretty quickly, after I, once I completed my degree, I started going to ISAs and gradually the feminists and other dissidents became aware of each other. And that helped a lot. And the IR has obviously been changed by those critical perspectives, though still not the mainstream orthodox IR like it has in other disciplines. And I'm endlessly curious about learning stuff. So I wanted to just, I, I decided, oh, I don't have to just teach junior college. I can be a professor, which astonished me, but I looked around and thought, I think I can do this. Um, <laughs> that was a bit naive, I must say. Um, oh, you've done it. It's pretty much what got me through life. And um, yeah, so it eventually, after three years on the job market, uh, I got a, was very grateful for a tenure track position at University of Arizona inspired by the gender and women's studies program, not the political science department, which basically resented um, being required basically to advertise line in, in gender and politics. Lucky me. I wondered, um, and the kind of natural question, and it's one we've asked everybody, is about whether, because the project is about critical IPE, um, and whether you see yourself as IP or not, given that you're trying to make a contribution to IR all the time, but you're, you're, you're making that contribution in a way that you're bringing all this other stuff, right Right from the earliest work, you were bringing all this other stuff. And so I was reading that and thinking, actually, but this is IP right from the start. You were, you were talking about IP issues. So do you see yourself as that? I, I would say IPE or global political economy is is one of my interests. And uh, given, look at the degrees I've had, <laughs> I'm not much committed to disciplinary orientation. So interdisciplinary work that became in other ways intersectionality work is what I've always been interested in from civil rights to then the anti-war stuff to then the feminist stuff and then the sexuality and queer studies. I thought, oh, wait a second, all of this is connected and um, how is rather more complicated. But that's what interests me, and as I said, that straight IR, so to speak, is uh, and their IR's bromance with positivism, I call it, is uh, too disappointing. There's a lot. There's too much at stake for the discipline, I think, of IR in U.S. political science to be so unreflective about power. Sure. I mean, on that then, do you, what do you see as your own contribution? Because I, I would have said, 
and and this may be something that's different about being in the UK and Europe as opposed to being in the US. Um, but I, I would have said certainly the IR that I see around me is fairly changed by your contribution and that of others like you. But I mean, you're one of those names that that rings has been as changing the discipline. So I wonder if if you because I, I catch two tones. It's one a kind of positive one. You say, oh, well, the ISA has changed, uh, and then another one slightly negative about the continuing relevance of positivism and um, and patriarchal uh, IR. Sounds like um, the narrative of political quandaries, isn't it? Rather, um, uh, as Issa said in her interview, you one step forward, two steps back often. And especially right now when it's so difficult to know what would be the most effective way to resist the horrific politics, especially in the United States, which is quite different in its unique way. Um, from UK, um, yeah. So you, you <laughs> goody two shoes. You try to celebrate the the advances and not just be a dark cloud all the time. Um, I have to struggle not to be a dark cloud, given my, if you will, intellectual analysis of just how uh, problematic our current conditions are. And a combination of yeah, critique of capitalism. I really wish there was a stronger critique of capitalism across the board. That's always been an interest to me. And the racism and uh, oh, the various ways in which we were addicted to domination. I mean, we take it for granted that that's, oh, that's, it's going to have to be that way. Um, yeah, sorry. But you didn't accept that. And, and you know, from certainly, looking at how undergraduate programs i mean again i guess my frame of reference is more uk based but the idea of gender in the state is fairly accepted uh now in certainly in in the uk and, and maybe even feminist i feminist security studies is is one of if not the most kind of dominant aspects of ir in the uk today i would say but do you, do you not feel positive about that that contribution? Well, feeling positive about a contribution and assessing its effects are, I think, different things. And I would say just as a generalization, and it's not just unique to feminism or anti-racist or post-colonial, you know, like it's the resistance from the mainstream or whatever that has more power to prevent, preclude, push back on transformation and does that, that also is really interesting in terms of the kind of you know not not the study of world politics but the uh the kind of political environment itself i mean yeah yes some of the politics like we've exchanged in our emails are, are a bit desperate but then there's an awful lot of hope isn't there i mean you know young people seem to be much less exclusionary and, and racist than they used to be. I know, I know the old guys <laughs> are still clinging on, but they, they're clinging on against, against demographic change and against, you know, uh, public change in many ways. This is, this is um, true. And uh, the, the youngsters are the best part. Yeah. Um, I know what I was going to say about IR, that while 
the particular, the post-colonial studies, the feminist studies, the groups, the journals, et cetera, they have proliferated and they have made a difference, especially to grad students, I would say. And so there's a percolating effect. But the mainstream doesn't read any of it still, right? which is that part of not critiquing its own power, just yeah, really. Um, and that is discouraging in the sense that just how much more difficult and longer a struggle it's going to be when it feels like there's not as much time as I used to think there was, not just for me personally, but yeah, it's the gloomy cloud back again, sorry. <laughs> if, if you were going to um, advise uh, students, you know, to read part of your work, to, to get a real flavor of it, where, where would you encourage them to look? Would it be the gender in the state? Would it be the, um, the RPV kind of framework or where would you be? Or the more recent stuff, which has been much more focused on race. Yeah. I have no idea. <laughs> Unless they had an awful lot of time and wanted to read an awful lot. Because as you observe, basically I dance around. And uh, so there's no single piece, I don't think, you know, like the, the RPV book was at that point my life work. And um, it basically fell through the cracks. There's a good example of. Um, not one IPE scholar reviewed that book, right? Um, doesn't mean it didn't make any difference, but that, that, was, that felt like a setback. Um, and like work on nationalism, uh, nationalism is heterosexism, was more pioneering than, than most. And I'm really still enamored of early state formation as a critique, a critical way of understanding the state system that we're in. And very glad to finally be taking more seriously a commitment, but not a delivery on including more post-colonial critical race studies. And I'd like to someday get to where I could say that about disability studies, but yeah. Yeah, you're right. That is a, a big silence in, in, in the international studies as opposed to kind of sociology or, or domestic social. Yeah. Yeah. I wondered also, because you were contemporaneous and we have you obviously on the um bob cox memorial um uh, podcast uh video as well um but you were contemporaneous with a lot of people and, and some of them we've interviewed and many of them mentioned you know, when we asked the question who else did we be interviewing they mentioned your name and I, I wondered how you found uh those kind of interactions with those other critical scholars maybe not doing gender in to the same extent but but in involved in fighting fighting against or resisting against the kind of mainstream ir focus well i think like most struggles uh and isa and other conferences are an opportunity to live this if you will you find allies and are immediately drawn to them because you're you're fighting similar struggles dearly indebted grateful for those folks especially the ipe folks that you interviewed who are virtually all favorites of mine um bob cox came to university of southern arizona where i had a postdoc when tom beersteger had the program there and was kind to me as he has been to so many people and actually took my bizarre dissertation research, which was, uh, uh, are you ready? An archeology span of domination, <laughs> a critique, a historicizing gender and class hierarchies in early Western state formation, a terrible job talk in IR. 
Um, and that, uh, he really made a difference because it enabled me to meet, um, be seen as somewhat credible amongst uh, that crew at that time. And I avoid naming people because I'll forget somebody and feel like shit about it. So I don't want to do that. Um, and then uh, Craig Murphy has always been just uh, unbelievably supportive. Um, that's I'm really grateful for that. And then the Feminist Network. I wondered if you wanted to say just one more thing. So I was, I was struck reading uh, the RPV stuff again and then just looking at the dates and thinking, wow, this stuff about dematerialty and signs and symbols and, mark, you know, all that stuff was, you know, it's what the kind of new materialists have rediscovered in the last five years or so. But you were, you were saying that way earlier than, than most people. Thank you. Um, now, well, there were other IP scholars who were, um, partly it was, is, it was in the context of a decade of globalization studies, etc., And... I wanted again to <laughs> integrate, merge, blend. Uh, I, I really loved when I discovered the RPV, reproductive, productive, and virtual, the virtual, both the branding and, as you say, the financialization. Uh, that was a major step in kind of um, disappointment. I think that the, the work on informal economies informalization more generally is a systemic process that is really racialized and gendered but hardly anyone addresses both of those um so that's what i wanted to do and have to assess it on its own terms i guess yeah there there were more people in the uk doing just about everything than there were in the united states and fortunately you've had uh, really good luck having visiting research gigs and uh i learned from them it was in addition to the conferences the folks who were doing what i thought was much more interesting critical work and aspired to reflect it in a variety of ways i mean that you you say that young because you've been back and forth to the uk for visiting positions quite a few times now um, and I wondered if that had brought anything, you, you thought there were any particular benefits to keeping coming back or, I mean, you've addressed it. <laughs> <laughs> Why keep coming here? <laughs> well, because I'm so lousy at languages, I wouldn't be able to <laughs> actually. I did have a, a gig at, at Gothenburg and, um, and of course, ANU. I think they were the opportunities I could take advantage of and did. And it just, enabled me to engage critical work much more effectively and productively than I can here on my own. Um, there, there was a really, really important sources and experiences in my life. Um, so thank you, UK. <laughs> Best was just getting outside of the United States. I really do like moving around. And um, your more recent work on family and intimacy and so on, is that the direction you're going in for the next period or have you got other ideas that you're developing? I have stacks of research notes. As I often say, I love doing research. I do research pretty much 
24-7 when I'm awake. And I just enjoy it. But writing, I loathe. I, it just, uh, so I have all these notes and ideas about what I'd like to write, which ones I'm not sure. I've been doing a lot of research on a critique of marriage as part of this nexus of um, uh, reproductive, productive, and uh, racial concerns. So I will continue the, to emphasize, I hope, the, the anti-race post-colonial literature and decentering IR, which is so desperately needed, but sure is a slog. Um, but I think actually what, I, what I've written recently and would like to do is more of a contribution to activism is a critique of privilege as a systemic power system because I've gradually, or from the get-go, if you will, thought it's the linkages, the relationships and structural powers that we need to understand. It's not just one or another. It's what makes it so difficult for people to self-reflect on their own power. And, and privilege is an area of inquiry by sociologists primarily that really addresses that and I think makes a lot of sense. So I um, hope to have an article coming out about it and helping us to understand our own responsibility, not blame, but responsibility in ways that don't just make us defensive when we are advised that we, we are um, racist by definition, uh, sexist by definition, etc. Um, so I hope that that uh, can go somewhere and who really knows? It's a, a challenging time. It is, and that, that sounds really exciting uh, work. And, and, but I'm shocked to hear you say you loathe, loathe writing when you've done so much of it and done it so successfully. I haven't done nearly as much as I would if I wrote faster and, and, and wrote up these research notes. It, it's that it takes me so long. It takes me so long. As I just, um, I'm not trying to be modest, it's just a reality check. I don't have the vocabulary. I listen to Christine Sylvester at her conference and I just think, how can you be so sharp, smart, concise, witty at the same time? Well, um, but when, I, when I'm writing, I don't get anything else done, like travel or having a good time, going dancing. Um, and I'm very uncomfortable with it, find myself in tears a lot, just, just frustrated, exasperated. And um, yeah, so, but I won't let go of anything until I feel really comfortable with it. Um, so it's not that I think the end product is, is uh, I don't think it's excellent, but I think it, it's, it's modest, it's good. It, you know, I, I would write good briefs, but um, yeah, it's too painful a process or I would have, uh, gotten a lot more out there. I think it's really refreshing to, for people to say because we've all sat there all day with a blank page or endlessly writing the same paragraph and deleting it. <laughs> and then I don't know if you if you have this, but I, you know, some days I'll spend all day get not achieve nothing, and then in the last hour something clicks and it all comes out, and I, I'm absolutely convinced that all day is necessary for that last hour. Oh, that's interesting. Oh, that's interesting hearing how different people have experiences. I never have that one. <laughs> I just 
have to keep going back and reworking to yeah yeah I different problems different challenges some successes but that that's good for students and people who are new to the the game to know isn't it that even people like yourself are so successful that you know occasionally find it hard to get the words on the on the piece of paper um I wondered if you wanted to say anything about what you see as the key debates. We've talked a lot about your work, but I wondered if you want to say anything about what you see as the key debates in the discipline now, uh, where you think the discipline is going or should go. I, I think I don't know. I don't actually read, you know, that much. I, you can see from the recent work that I've done that it has a, a political economy um, portion vector to it, if you will. Um, and always will, I assume. Actually, one of those is a critique of inheritance. That's something else I want to write more about. You know, like it's just, why isn't that more of a topic of inquiry? But the family state business has prompted me to think, um, uh, so I'm not even really sure what the current debates are because I don't read that literature broadly. It seems to me we still lack an appreciation for what post-structuralists uh, tell us about power, right? Um, I don't know, it varies. And I still think the mainstream, we still haven't affected the mainstream, at least in a, you know, it is US, it's just so stubbornly neo-positivist. Um, and we're only beginning to notice the critiques of racism and post-colonial scholarship that has been around for a long time, um, finally is getting noticed but addressed, engaged, I'm waiting, hoping to contribute. Um, but uh, I think especially in, in the 21st century that international relations can remain so, hardly polite, narrow. Yeah, I'll just say that. One of the things that does seem to be occurring though is a, a shift away from IPE or, or political economy as a, as a study of international economic relations and more about dissolving that, that kind of national, international boundary. That does seem to be occurring in a lot of scholarship now. I assume so. I hope so. Oh, um, I, it obviously depends. One's perception depends on what, where one is looking. And uh, I haven't been looking that closely at, at that um, scholarship. There is a special issue, a double special issue coming out in RIPE and new political economy soon, um, prompted by a workshop at um, Sheffield uh, Sperry um, that covers a lot of terrain as an attempt to address blind spots, an interesting concept, there being so many of them. Um, so, you know, I read all those papers and whatnot, and it's, it's um, what I observe mostly is increasing specialization. Uh, so people are doing more in particular areas, but fewer, I don't know, fewer, what compared to what, um, it kind of overviews general, the kind of um, pulling all together or getting out of particular boxes. And I think it has to do with the nature of the neoliberal university, neoliberalism more generally. So I know that you, you ask um, what advice would you have, and that's a stumbling block for me. I think that higher ed, especially in the United States, is in serious trouble. 
because we have done so little to um, minimize COVID's uh, effects. And it's not big on public education anymore. A major political change of illimitable implications. Um, and the, the, being an academic is uh, more constrained, ever more constrained. Um, I would mostly encourage people to think politically, to be engaged in politics because higher education here anyway is at stake. That's what they're going for it because it's the only critical feedback they're likely to get. And uh, they know that it's not just a coincidence. It's a complex convergence of different trajectories, but it's not innocent. We've got the same here. The government now is really targeting soft social science um, ideas. They want it out of government. They want it, you know, and everything is to think like a physicist, basically. And data, yeah. data science is the is the thing that they're they're after. It's a bit depressing in in some ways. Yes. I mean, <laughs> there, are, there are lots of contributions that work can make. I mean, but it, it has to be contextualised and theoretically grounded and uh, and and be directed to understanding the social world, not just picking up patterns that may or may not be <laughs> uh, uh, interesting. Um, I wondered if there were any particular younger scholars that you were reading now that you were excited about seeing where they, they're, they're, the ideas that they're developing and so on, whether that's in IP or, or other ways. Right. I think the junior scholars, the younger people, however we want to characterize that, um, are just doing fabulous, exciting work. And I, I still mostly read feminist, queer, anti-race, post-colonial, post-structuralist um, work has in anthropology and classicism, really, really, if you're going to do early states, it's it's very strange what kind of historical um, sociology and um, anthropology one kind of has to engage. Um, yeah, so I, again, I won't name names because happily there are some stunning um, authors out there who are shaking it up. I cheer them on. Brilliant. Is, is there anything else that you would like to say? I know you said you'd, you'd thought a bit about what you, would go, you were going to tell us uh, today. Were there any other things that we haven't asked about that you'd like to contribute to the, the discussion? What do you consider your most important teaching contribution or technique or practice? Yeah. So I wanted to say I have found it's partly coming out of the privilege studies, but Encouraging students to always put things in context and understand that every decision, every policy, every um, idea, whatever, has trade-offs, involves trade-offs. They can't not, yeah? And that, uh, at least in liberal U.S. Uh, narratives, oh, you just, there's always going to be the right one, and we can fix this. Um, my students are really burdened with that uh, legacy. Um, and that we rarely stop and ask, well, compared to what? I know in Craig's interview, he mentioned, you know, like the, the third way, whatever, um, that I promise students to think, you know, like, well, I'm not, there are real limitations to liberalism, and we're going to study them because it's problematic in many ways. 
um, compared to fascism, I'd like to think I'd be willing to die for it. Compared to what might be more imaginable as a real kind of uh, you know, social democracy of participation and amelioration of hierarchies, it, done, you know, it doesn't cut it. And I will continue to criticize it. But this is obviously more difficult these days. Um, I just try to encourage them to think about what you, when you're making, oh, they could, you know, that's a stupid thing to do. Well, what were the choices available? They're, they're often, all choices are limited, but students are in that, you know, well, um, there's a right choice and there are free choices and they must have chosen to be poor. <laughs> yeah, I've heard that one in the classroom before. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've, one of the things I really wanted to get over was, I mean, when I, as I said, I was reading all that work and one of the things I think we all should be grateful of is, or grateful for, is the way in which I think some of the scholarship is really quite selfless. You, reading that work, you're doing a lot of joining up dots of other people's contributions and promoting them uh, in the work over time. So I just really wanted to say thank you for doing that because it, it really did join, bring it all together and, and make the point really powerfully about you know, the, the gendered states and the, and, and, and the wider perspectives and bringing other, other disciplines into to the study of whatever we call it international relations international political economy international studies whatever you you, you were somebody who really did bring all that stuff so i, I really wanted just to say thank you for that really and let me say thank you for uh, taking as much care in preparing for the interview and um supporting me through it i really appreciate it Thanks for listening to Foundations and in International Political Economy. We hope you'll check in with us again soon. You can subscribe to the podcast series on Apple Podcasts, on Google Podcasts, or on Spotify. Or just go to the website www.ipefoundations.org.uk to find out more. 